0: According to the Cuba Archive Project, 10,723 deaths are attributed to the regime of Fidel Castro, <clears throat> including nearly 1,000 disappearances, more than 2,000 extrajudicial killings, and over 3,100 people killed by firing squad, 100 children beaten to death. In addition to these killings, some 78,000 people are estimated to have died while trying to flee the country. Fidel Castro died in 2016 at the age of 90, but his totalitarian system and laws live on, causing continued misery for the Cuban people and thus the protests that broke out in that country last Sunday and continue today. Likewise, last Sunday, as we were continuing our sermon series in the book of Esther, we saw how Haman, he's the enemy, the bad guy, in that story was killed in the poetic justice of God. So Haman is dead, but the crisis for the Jewish people in Persia lives on because Haman's edict is still in effect. Now let me remind you, or let's refresh this morning, on how that edict read. Esther chapter 3 verse 13. To annihilate, kill, and destroy all the Jews, both young and old, women and children in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, and to seize their possessions as plunder. So basically in 11 months, all of the Jews in Persia are under an edict of annihilation where the citizens can attack them and take their possessions and their property. Fortunately, God's providence on their behalf is still being exercised. Queen Esther comes before the king, King Xerxes, with another request. Haman's out of the way this time, so she doesn't have to preface it with a banquet. we we'll read this in uh, verses 5 and 8. Esther says to King Xerxes, If it pleases the king, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. But this request is not so easy for King Xerxes as accepting an invitation to a banquet because Persian laws are irrevocable. And he says no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring, can be revoked. So his hands are tied, even though he does want to help her. The best he can do is to give to Mordecai and Esther the ability to write a new edict. Verse 8 again. Write another decree in the king's name, in behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. So Esther and Mordecai cannot overturn the previous edict. But the best they can do is to try, to try to create a level playing field when that day comes in Persia. So they get right to work. Here's what they write. Verse 11. The king granted the Jews in each and every city the right to assemble and to defend their lives. To destroy, kill, and eliminate the entire army of any people or province which was going to attack them, including children and women, and to plunder their spoils. Now, one thing I want us to see this morning is how closely the second edict, this is Mordecai and Esther's edict, mimics the first edict of Haman. The wording is almost exactly the same. On the next slide, I'm going to put the original edict on the top and then Mordecai's edict underneath that this is Young's literal translation that I'll have up here. So it's the closest we get to a word-for-word Hebrew translation. The first edict reads, To cut off, to slay, and to destroy all the Jews, from young even to old, infants and women, and their spoil to seize. Mordecai wrote, To cut off, to slay, and to destroy the whole force of the people who are distressing them, the Jews, infants and women, and their spoil to seize. So he's going for a word-to-word correspondence here. And, and legally, and that's a very clever thing to do. The primary difference between these two edicts is the first one, Haman's edict, is a, is a law of aggression. It's aggressive to attack the Jews, to kill them, and to take their property. Whereas the edict of Mordecai and Esther is absolutely defensive, totally defensive. They're simply defending themselves from hostile attack. It only remains to be seen who prevails 11 months later when that day comes. And let's look at it. Chapter 9, selected verses. The Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. No one could stand against them. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword. In the seat of El the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. So it was the Jews with God's help who prevailed over the Persians who were attacking them. Now, 500 men were killed just in Susa, thousands more throughout the country of Persia. I want us to note two things. First of all, the narrator points out it was 500 men who were killed. Although that edict legally empowered the Jews to kill women and children, it appears that they did not. Certainly not in Susa, and apparently not in the rest of Persia. And secondly... The narrator points out in three different places, I don't have them all on the screen, but in three different places of this account that the Jews did not lay their hands on the spoil. Again, even though legally the edict empowered them to do that, they did not despoil the people that they had conquered. Now, this was Haman's intent to kill the Jews, take their money, take their property, take their plunder. And the Jews had that ability, but they restrained themselves. So there's a definite element of restraint that's being exercised by the Jews as they defend themselves against hostile attack in Persia. Now, what this appears to be is an Old Testament example authorizing a biblical foundation for self-defense. Some people may say, well, Steve, I mean, this is just one example in the Old Testament, and it is the Old Testament, and God doesn't necessarily... Specifically, say that he's authorizing this. It could just be a description, not a prescription for what ought to happen. It's just what is happening. Okay, fair enough. I think it is prescriptive, but we're going to look at this this morning in a wider context. So, today, my presentation is the biblical foundation for self defense. I doubt that you have ever heard a sermon on this before. I have heard a lot of sermons from a lot of preachers. I've never heard one on this before. But that's kind of the way I roll. So unless you were here, I did preach on this about eight years ago. If you happen to be here then, I I spoke to that. But here we go. A biblical foundation for self-defense. We're going to look a little bit at the Old Testament. We're going to look at the ministry of Jesus and a little bit at the New Testament. Let's start with Old Testament, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, you shall not murder. This is the sixth commandment. It does not read, you shall not kill. That's a very poor translation. It appears to prohibit all killing at all time. Actually, the word is "ratsak" in the Hebrew, and it means murder. You shall not murder is the prohibition. Now, all murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. You cannot logically say that God is here. He's uh, proscribing the taking of life under any and all circumstances because a few verses later, God says that the punishment for breaking this commandment is death. So so you logically can't say that that is what God is doing. In fact, this commandment, along with its punishment, elevates the sanctity of human life in the Bible. Because the punishment is not gold for life, it's not money for life, it's not cattle for life, it's not imprisonment for life, it is life for life. This is the most serious thing that someone can do is steal someone else's life. Here's a second commandment from the law of Moses. Exodus 22 verse 2. If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. But if the sun has risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. He shall surely make restitution. Now there are two scenarios that are described here. The first one is a thief is breaking into a house in the middle of the night. It's dark. The homeowner does not know who it is or why they are intruding. He has no access to the police. There were no police in Israel back in that day. And so in order to defend himself and his family, he strikes the thief. The thief dies. And the law says there's no blood guiltiness under those circumstances. He's not guilty of murder. Had no ability to retreat. It's dark. He had no other options. The second scenario is After the sun has risen, if a homeowner is aware that a thief has broken into his house, he goes and finds him and he strikes him so that he dies, then that homeowner does have blood blood guiltiness. He is guilty of murder because of the different circumstances. It's daylight now. He has other recourses. He can call in the civil authorities in the Israel government to deal with that situation. So the law of Moses here and God seems to be recognizing these mitigating circumstances and carving out a use of force that does not fit under the category of vengeance or revenge or even hatred, but rather falls into a category that we would call self-defense, legitimate self-defense. I want to read uh, just one other example from the Old Testament. This one comes from the book of Nehemiah. Let me briefly give you the context for Nehemiah. As you recall, Nehemiah was a Persian exile. Just like Mordecai, just like Esther, they stayed in Persia. But Nehemiah returned with a wave of exiles back to Israel. And this is a book of the Bible. And in this book of the Bible, Nehemiah is leading a building project to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem that were torn down when they were conquered 70 years earlier. So Nehemiah is leading this building project but there is opposition to that building that comes from the locals and it is hostile and violent opposition. So here's what we read that bearing that in mind Nehemiah chapter 4 selected verses. Nehemiah says, "When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight." for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other hand holding a weapon. It says in chapter 20, 20, latter part of that verse, and our God will fight for us. Now, two or three things here. First of all, this is not the army of Israel that's being instructed here. It's not a police force. These are individual private citizens who are being instructed. Secondly, they are told to fight for their family, their sons, their daughters, their wives, their brothers, and their homes. They are defending life and property. And thirdly, He says at the end there, and our God will fight for us. They're still depending upon God to fight for them, but depending on God to fight for us does not preclude people arming themselves and defending themselves against hostile attack. This is not an either or. Either you trust God or you defend yourself. It is a both and. There are other passages we could cite from the Old Testament. But this is the consistent testimony in the Old Testament. Oh, but Steve, now you know, we're not Old Testament Jews. We're New Testament Christians. That was then and this is now. All right, fair enough. But remember, a lot of these Old Testament principles carry over to today unless they're abrogated in some way by Jesus in the New Testament. And I do not believe this one is. Let's take a look at the example of Jesus. Let me ask you some rhetorical questions. You just answer them in your mind. Did Jesus ever defend himself? Did he ever defend himself and his life from a hostile, violent attack? Did Jesus ever defend any of his disciples? Did he ever use his special powers to do that? Did he ever intervene and defend, uh, you know, innocent life that was under attack? You know, the answer to those questions is yes. It is yes. Let's look at a couple of examples. Luke chapter 4 and verse 28. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things, and they got up and drove Jesus out of the city. They led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went on his way. All right, here is a violent mob who wants to take Jesus' life. They lead him right to the edge of the cliff. Does he allow them to throw him off? No, he does not. Does he defend his life at this point in his ministry? Yes, absolutely he does. Does he use violence or force to do so? No. He appears to use uh, some ability that he has to just pass through their midst. Uh, An invisibility cloak? I don't know what it was. But he used it. You use whatever is available to you. Another example of the same kind of thing is John chapter 10, verse 31 and 39. The Jews picked up stones again to stone Jesus. They were seeking again to seize him. And he eluded their grasp. So we all know how Jesus, he gave his life at the end of his ministry to be crucified. But there were times throughout that ministry until that time came when he absolutely did not allow a criminal element to have their way with him. I put it this way. No one laid a hand on Jesus until Jesus was ready. In John chapter 8, we read of Jesus coming to the defense of an adulterous woman who was facing a horrifying death from a mob by stoning. He didn't use force to defend her. He used his verbal skills. But nevertheless, it shows the heart of Jesus to intervene on behalf of the innocent, or not the innocent, but those who are helpless, against those who are violently wanting to take their life. In Acts chapter 9, we have the account of Saul, the Pharisee. Who has a history of persecuting the church. He hounds Christians. He confiscates their personal property. He puts them in jail. And sometimes the Bible says he would hound them even to death. He is on his way to Damascus to do that to Christians who are in that city. Until Jesus intercepts him. Remember that. And how did Jesus prevent Saul from going to Damascus to hound these Christians to death? He blinded him. He blinded him. Now, he didn't use mace or pepper spray. He used the glorious brilliance of his presence. But blinding, by any measure, is a pretty dramatic intervention. In the long term, this led to Saul's conversion. But in the short term, it saved the lives of who knows how many Christians in Damascus. And I'm sure when those Christians found out that Jesus had intervened on their behalf that they were grateful to the Lord. In Luke chapter 22, verse 35, Jesus said to his disciples, when I sent you out without money, belt, bag, sandals, you did not lack for anything, did you? They said, no. He said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, a bag and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and to buy one. Now, the sword was the primary self-defense weapon at that day and in that culture. That's like Jesus showing up to church here today and saying, congregation, I want all of you to go out and buy a Glock. And if you don't have enough money, you need to hold a yard sale so that you can buy one. Now, there are many commentators and scholars who are divided upon what the implications of this passage are. But one thing is for sure, at this time, this place, in this ministry, Jesus instructed his disciples to go and to purchase swords and to arm themselves for self-defense. Now, here's another thing. John the Baptist, Jesus, and the apostles often interacted in an evangelistic way with members of the military, right? They're seeking to convert Roman soldiers, for instance, members of the military. Luke chapter 3, Matthew chapter 8, Acts chapter 10. And on each occasion, these members of the military who become followers of Jesus were not told, all right, now that you're becoming a Christian, you need to become a pacifist. You need to lay down your arms. You can't serve in the military because that's part of what it means to follow Jesus. That never happens. They get a pass on that. But I think that's an implication. There is no conflict between taking up arms, serving in the military, and being a follower of Jesus. John chapter 10 verse 18, Jesus says, no one has taken my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. I call this the principle of stewardship. This is Jesus' stewardship over the gift of life that God had given to him. He had the right and the ability to lay his life down when he chose to do so. And that choice, of course, was when he was crucified. But nobody took his life, he said. He's giving his life. I believe, in my opinion, we have the same principle of stewardship over the life, the gift of life, our most precious gift that God has given to us. Now, it's not as absolute as Jesus' control over his life. There are many things we do not control about our lives. So it is a relative stewardship, not an absolute stewardship. But that being said, we have a control over the life that God has given to us. We might choose At some point in time, if we think the circumstances dictate that this is the godly and the righteous thing to do for us to forfeit our lives for someone else. Jim Elliot, for instance, missionary to the Alca Indians in Ecuador, chose to do that. He was armed, but he and his fellow missionaries had decided beforehand that if they were attacked by the Alcas, they would not exercise self-defense and they were speared to death. My point was, that was his choice to make. And this is your choice to make. But nowhere... In the Bible, that I'm aware of, does Scripture obligate a Christian to forfeit their life to someone else, a criminal element, just because they have an illegal and immoral and hostile desire to steal your life? It's your stewardship. It's your choice. Now, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught this. And if it were not for this teaching we wouldn't even be having, there would be no debate. But um, Matthew 5, 38, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, and whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. So there, there are two possible interpretations for this passage in the Sermon on the Mount. The f- one possible interpretation is that Jesus was here introducing a radical New prohibition against the use of force at any time in any circumstances, including self defense or defense of one's family, mandating pacifism for the followers of Jesus. There are many people that believe that. There are whole church denominations that are given over to that. So there's that. The other possible interpretation is that Jesus was here correcting. The misapplication of Old Testament law by the Pharisees. By the Pharisees, they're taking this eye for eye, tooth for tooth. They were using it to teach vengeance upon their enemies. Jesus is correcting that. He's saying we should be living peaceful lives, nonviolent lives. We do not escalate, we do not retaliate for an insult, for instance which in that culture in that time was a slap on the right cheek. If someone were to stand before you and give you a backhanded slap, it would hit you on the right cheek. That was considered an insult. So turn the other cheek. When it comes to insults, we are not to engage. We are not to retaliate. We are not to escalate. We walk away. Whenever we can walk away, we walk away. Christians are the most peaceful the most nonviolent, non-aggressive people, even if it means someone's going to call you a coward because you walk away, be called a coward. Be willing to take that. We will not retaliate when insulted. All right. So those are the two possible interpretations. Obviously, I take the latter, and I do so because I think it's hermeneutically sound. Hermeneutics is the science of interpreting the Bible, and I think that interpretation fits the context Because this is what Jesus is doing in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. He is correcting the misapplication of Old Testament scriptures and laws by the Pharisees. So that's the hermeneutical principle of context. And also, it harmonizes with the rest of what God has taught in the Old Testament and demonstrated in the ministry of Jesus. So that's the hermeneutical principle of harmonization. Harmonization. All right, let me wrap this up. In uh, Esther chapter 8, verse 17, we we read something very interesting, and we don't read it anywhere else in the Old Testament. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Nowhere else in the Old Testament do we read of some kind of mass conversion to Judaism. For some reason it happened when the Jews stood up for themselves and they saw the power of God. They said, we're going to become Jews. So I just think that's interesting. We, have something, we do have something similar in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 5, after the death of Ananias and Sapphira, where we read, the great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these things, and more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Stand your ground. God allows it, and someone might get saved in the process. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of life that you have given it given to us. We accept our stewardship of this life. We thank you, Lord, that we get to defend it just like we defend our faith. We pray you'll give us the wisdom, just like Jesus had, if and when the time ever comes to lay it down to do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.